baptism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. This is kind of a command, a summary of the whole chapter. Favoritism is not compatible with faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That's his big point, and so that's what we're going to explore today. We're going to be looking at under three headings that roughly line up with the structure of the passage. First of all, what is favoritism? What's wrong with favoritism, and why is it incompatible with faith in Christ? We're going to then finish by looking at what might be the alternative to a community of favoritism. So first of all, what is favoritism? Uh, James gives a very practical, relatable example, perhaps, of what favoritism might look like in a community. He talks about a man coming in there in verse 2 into your meeting wearing a gold ring. How many men have got gold rings? No, okay, that's right. Gold rings dressed in fine clothes. A poor person comes dressed in dirty or literally filthy clothes, comes in, rotten clothes. If you look on the favour of the man wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor man, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, even though in the context uh, of the ancient world, uh, this, these events are kind of going on, and we might not find that we show favouritism to people with gold rings or whatever it is like that. The kind of thing we can relate to, I think, is the experience of showing favour on people who can do things for us, people of wealth, of influence, of charisma, of social status. And we can also perhaps relate to people that we might distance ourselves from, people who might be socially embarrassing, difficult to talk to, unhygienic, who don't have a lot to give back. We can distance ourselves from these kind of people. And I think we do this all the time. And James is saying the problem with kind of favouritism like this is that we actually find ourselves subconsciously or consciously or not putting ourselves in the position of judges discriminating against others. And we read there in verse 4, haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So we've not just become judges, according to James, we've become corrupt judges. We're, we're the kind of judges where, they, where the decision is made in court kind of based on who gives you the money under the table, that kind of thing. And what we see here, I think... When we read this passage in the 21st century, I think we can discover that the problem of favouritism, or what we might call discrimination, we're kind of familiar with it in the kind of modern Western world. In the last century, a lot of work has been done to eradicate various forms of discrimination, whether that's based on race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, all those kind of things. The idea of discriminating against people seems to be at least this part in history and this part of the world collectively frowned upon. But interestingly, at the same time, this kind of uh, idea of uh, discriminating against people has been frowned upon. At the same time, in parts of the Western world, the idea of Christian faith has also been frowned upon. I've been reading a book, some of you might have read before, by Australian author Steve McAlpine, called Being the Bad Guys. I recommend it if you haven't read it. it he's exploring uh, this phenomenon and how it seems that overnight, it seems, that Christians have moved from being kind of respectable moral figures in society, maybe to 
irrelevant and now to the villains in society. And he points out the great irony that things like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, that claim that you know human beings are born equal and that should be self-evident, that's a self-evident truth. He points the irony out that historically it hasn't been self-evident. Uh, it comes from a worldview shaped by the Genesis account uh, of creation where all humanity has been created in the image of God. And so the idea that we seem to kind of commonly nod our heads, yeah, discrimination's wrong, favoritism's wrong, based on these kind of external factors, we kind of nod our head. It's like that actually has come from the inheritance of a Judeo-Christian worldview. And when we hear it read here in James, at the time it would have been quite revolutionary. It wouldn't have been common sense. It would have been quite normal and wise, perhaps, to show favouritism to certain kinds of people. But what we see here, it's revolutionary because it flows out of a living faith in Jesus Christ. And we're going to see it's more than just virtue signalling against favouritism. It's actually really rejecting this kind of discrimination and favouritism. We're going to come back with, to it a bit later. The second question we've got is what is wrong with favouritism? Uh, so, sometimes partly because of the world we live in, we just instinctively think, well, favouritism, discrimination, that's just wrong. It's just, you know, that's unfair. And sometimes we raise children that way and they, people grow up thinking, well, this is fair. It should be just, it's just plain wrong. We all know that. But James actually goes deeper and helps us to see what is actually the problem. And he identifies a few things, a few problems. The first is, when we favour things that the world favours, the problem is we're actually not mirroring the heart of God. Verse 5, listen, my dear brothers. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you dishonoured that poor man. Now there is a paradox, I don't know if you've spotted it in this passage, it seems to be a passage that is against favouritism, yet here it seems to suggest that God has his favourites, the poor. He favours the poor, doesn't he? Let's break it down and see what's going on here. What we find, I think, throughout uh, history, uh, throughout the, the Bible, throughout the world, there is a general trend, and it's sometimes hard to spot it in this part of the world, but there is a general trend that the Christian church has generally been stronger amongst those who have been, in the eyes of society, weaker and poorer. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 26, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. He talks about how God has used the weak things of the world to shame the wise, how we are treasures in clay pots. Now, why is this? Why is this sort of phenomenon going on? On one level, we can see that God actually builds his kingdom among the materially and socially poor of the world to teach the world that being part of God's kingdom is all about being completely dependent on God and not on ourselves, not on our good works. It's not about our self-sufficiency. It's about finding our sufficiency in God. So that's why there's this, God, God built his particular characteristic of his kingdom is that it's built amongst the poorer members of society. It's not uncommon for a poorer person in society to be more ready to ask for help than a richer person. 
Now, of course, pride can exist across rich and poor spectrums, but God does use the materially poor as a demonstration that his kingdom is built on his own self-sacrifice on people who are ready and happy and indeed delighted to cry out for mercy and not hardened in self-sufficient, stubborn pride. And so the problem with favouritism between the rich and the poor is that actually when we do this, it's failing to mirror the heart of God and the nature of his kingdom. The second related problem is that when we show favouritism, we're in danger of thinking that we are actually, by favouring, you know, one, you know by, by taking interest in one kind of group, particularly the rich, we're in danger of kidding ourselves and thinking that we are keeping what James refers to as the royal law. But actually, we're clearly breaking it, verse 8 and 9. Indeed, if you keep the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you're doing well. But here's the catch. If you show favouritism, you commit sin. So if you show favouritism, even if you're showing love, but if you're showing favouritism, you commit sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. In the famous parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 10, Jesus exposes the Pharisees' self-righteous self-justification about limiting the definition of who is my neighbour. I want to, you know, love my neighbour, your neighbour is yourself. And the, the Pharisees would kind of go, okay, well then, you know, how, how, how narrow can I get the definition of a neighbour? Who do I have to love? And the point of the parable, if you're familiar with it, is that the neighbour is the one who shows radical mercy without discrimination. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, there are those who pass by the beaten man on the side of the road and they would be effectively, by passing him by, they would be passing judgment on him. The point of the parable is that everyone other than the Good Samaritan who showed and acted in mercy, everyone else in their different ways, by their silence, by their words of their empty words was casting judgment on the beaten man and the the warning is very stark in James we need to hear this that judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy there is a warning for those who are not showing mercy but judging others. But then the phrase that follows is a little bit surprising. It kind of grammatically just leaps out there. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It doesn't say therefore or because. It just says mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, if you're a Christian, we take comfort in the fact that mercy triumphs over God's judgment over us, don't we? We, we take comfort in the fact that we are not judged as our sins deserve, we take comfort that God is generous and abundant in his mercy shown towards us. But we can't ignore this warning as well that are in these verses that is clearly written to Christians. Be very careful in presuming upon the mercy of God while at the same time being unconcerned about our subconscious judgment casting on others through our favouritism. It's concerning. We'll, we'll come to that in a few moments. In the 
flesh that out a little bit more. But let's think of the third question here. Why is favoritism incompatible with faith in Christ? Incompatibility. Why is James so concerned in this chapter, chapter 2 of James, why is he so concerned that his Christian readers don't show favoritism as they profess to hold on to faith in Christ? The concern is that if someone is claiming to have faith, trust in Jesus, but there is no evidence of a changed life, then is it really true that they are actually trusting in Jesus? See there in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can his faith save him? Now, throughout church history, there has been a bit of debate about this section of James, particularly uh, there was a, the, the reformer, the great reformer Martin Luther found this part of the Bible, he found it very difficult to accept the letter of James as being on the same status of other parts of the Bible because it seemed to so blatantly contradict Paul's teaching in Romans that we are justified by faith alone and not by works In fact, Paul seems to use the exact same Old Testament example of Abraham to make the opposite point, that Abraham was justified by his faith and not by his works. But we also know that from church history, from the early church fathers, from the apostles, that they had no issue with Paul and James and they had no issue with their teaching existing side by side. So what is Paul and James teaching here? What is James teaching, particularly in light of the rest of the New Testament? He's not teaching that we're kind of like, we're saved by faith plus additional works in the sense that, you know, there's, when you become a Christian, you kind of tick this box, you sign up to Christian faith and then someone hands you a whole bunch of Christian works and you go, okay, okay, I'll sign up to those as well. He's not talking about that. James is teaching that, genuine Christian saving faith will manifest itself in works that reflect the character of our loving Heavenly Father. And counterfeit Christian faith might say and do the right things, might sound very knowledgeable, might go through the motions, but actually in reality, at the heart, is not concerned about the things that God is concerned with, and so that manifests itself in the in the different kind of life. Uh, the example that's often given uh, is that that example of the, the the tightrope walker at Niagara Falls. Now, I've done a survey today. Has people heard this example? You know, no, you haven't heard it because you've been here twice today. Yeah, of course. Yeah, right. Okay, I just assumed everyone knew this story, but maybe, okay, well, there's a story that I I don't even know if it's true, so someone can find out later, fact check if this is a true story, but the story goes that there was a tightrope walker who was was going across Niagara Falls, and he developed a a, a reputation for doing these amazing things without a safety net, without any safety things, and he built this huge crowd following following him, and, uh, you know, people come and watch what he was doing, and then... And one time he would just ta- keep taking more and more things across, going back and forth. And then he said, now, who believes that I can take a person uh, a, a person across with me? And everyone goes, yes, we believe you can do it. And then he says, who's going to come with me? 
right? And of course, silence. Can someone find out if that's a true story? Anyway, you can find it later. It's a good, it makes a point, right? The authenticity of someone's actual faith is not demonstrated by, yes, Jesus, but yeah, you know, it's actually put, it's about putting faith in practice. Courage, not merely words. Verse 18, someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without works and I'll show you faith from my works. And then James gives some examples. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. Now, on a personal level, uh, I feel like this is a bit of an area that I can struggle with as a pastor. Uh, Personally, I'm convinced that the most important thing for people to hear is the good news, the gospel of Jesus, and that there is no other way other than trusting the good news of Jesus that people can have eternal salvation than by hearing the gospel. And so what I can find is I can find myself narrowly focusing in on this central, and it is central truth, that I can be in danger, though, of being like one of those passers-by in the parable of the Good Samaritan who just walks past someone's practical, physical needs and say, I wish you well. And I've been very encouraged and often rebuked by people in this church, in this community, in this particular area where I see so many people having a deep concern for showing practical care to those in need. Now, the point that James is making is that for those who claim to trust Jesus, but their lives look exactly the same, actually not just look exactly the same, but their lives are actually devoid of a concern for the things that God is concerned with. It's not that, it's not that we're not doing enough for our salvation. But the concern is, are we really gripped by Jesus and what he has done? Are we convinced about what Jesus has done? Now, to round out the chapter, James gives uh, two examples of saving faith from the Old Testament. Uh, The first is from an Old Testament hero, Abraham, possibly the equivalent of the rich man. Everyone wants to... Everyone wanted to be Abraham, if you're a Jewish person. Abraham's a great hero. The second is from an Old Testament nobody, a Gentile Rahab. But like the point of the rich and the poor, the distinction is eradicated as both the great hero Abraham and the lesser known Rahab, they are both justified by faith that showed itself in radical action of faithful, trusting obedience to God. Now, how can we then be a community that is rich in mercy, that welcomes everyone, not showing favouritism, not triaging our care uh, out to people who offer us something that we want and need? The opposite of a community 
of favoritism is a radical community of mercy and love. But how do we do this? Well, if you've been around church for long enough, if you've been Christian for long enough, you will know that the solution can't be, well, just try harder. (laughs) Although sometimes trying harder can be a bit of a circuit breaker and helpful at times, but there's more, that's not the solution, right? I want to finish just by zooming in on a couple of key phrases that we've skimmed over. I think James makes a profound but obvious point in verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Great, you believe that. The demons also believe that. (laughs) And they shudder. Notice that phrase there, shudder. It describes how the demons react to their knowledge of God. It's like a gag reflex. Fear, anxiety that kicks in when you're terrified of something, when something just is just too uncomfortable for you. The demons know stuff about God, probably more things than we know, but they shudder. Their response is fear and destruction. And you see, when our faith is exclusively in the things that we think we know about God, our theology... It can lead us to privately shudder at the idea of having a transformed life, serving him radically, loving the things that our Heavenly Father loves. And so for someone who's grown up knowing a lot of things about God, but perhaps privately you're not particularly enamoured by Jesus, then it shouldn't be a surprise that this so-called knowledge that you've grown up with might not manifest itself in the works that James describes. So what's the solution? Hmm? Well, I want to return to that opening verse of the chapter. My brothers, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. You notice that word glorious? It's a word that captures the splendor, the wonder the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. It's a word that doesn't describe the theoretical, the abstract doctrine, but the wonder, the splendour and the beauty. So we've recently had the Alpha course and there's many courses like it that introduce people to the key truths of the Christian faith. And sometimes when you have courses like this, you can have two people who go through the exact same course hear the exact same thing, take in the exact same information, have the exact same intellectual capacity. But as the course goes on, one is drawn to the glory of Jesus and one shudders at the implications of what it might mean to submit to his lordship. To hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ is not simply signing off on the doctrine of the Anglican Church, something like that it describes a trust of being drawn to the splendor of the cross the splendor of what jesus has done and it's this kind of trust in the glory of the lord jesus christ that leads to a life of liberty freedom and a faith that shows itself in christ-like works let's pray together father we give you thanks we give you thanks that you have revealed yourself to us in your son And we ask that you will continue uh, 
and to show us his glory, the glory of the cross and the glory of your love for us in him. And that that knowledge won't just stay in the way that it becomes theoretical or abstract, but it will result in transformed lives. And particularly as we've been looking at tonight in a community that is ready, ready and keen to show mercy, practical mercy and love and a lack of favouritism for the things that the world favours, but a community of radical love, loving others the way that you have loved us. And we ask this in your son's mighty name. Amen.